I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. This week, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen convened a meeting of the leaders of the nation's financial regulatory agencies to begin assessing the risks posed by stablecoins and other digital assets. One issue likely to have popped up is the question of capital. You see, nothing is more core to banking than the concept of capital. It lies at the foundation of how regulators think about and evaluate the health of banks from that little institution around the corner to global behemoths like J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. See, banks take on risks whenever they lend out their money and may suffer losses if risks like non-payment materialize. To stay safe and protect people's deposits, Banks have to be able to absorb such losses and keep going in good times and bad. Now, the concept of both banking and bank capital become more complicated the second you have something like cryptocurrencies coming into the picture. Once banks start lending crypto or holding it for depositors or even borrowing in crypto, they potentially introduce new kinds of risks that can spook counterparties and creditors and as a consequence lead to financial instability. And regulators are starting to take notice as the Basel Committee... uh, International Confab of Banking Supervisors has proposed new guidelines for bank capital that may soon be adopted around the world. And of course, I wanted to learn more and am delighted to have some of the foremost legal experts in the world here to break it down. Caitlin Long, the CEO of Avanti, a bank launched to serve the digital asset industry, and Dan Tarullo, the former Federal Reserve governor who quite literally wrote the book on Basel and authored many of the rules that have governed finance since the financial crisis. They're two of the best in this special edition of the FinTech Beat. Dan, Caitlin, thanks so much for joining the show. Good to be with you, Chris. Thank you. It's my honor, Dr. Brummer. Thank you. Dan, okay, you more than anyone else have really been at the forefront of the action in safeguarding the stability of the financial system. And and maybe you can just walk us through, since you are, after all, a famous professor as well. Uh, So in basic terms, what is capital? Um, I I think a lot of times people sort of swing the term around and and, and may not be entirely clear as to what it means. But, but what is capital and, and why is it important to banks? Right. So I think, Chris, what you're asking is, what does capital mean in the bank regulatory context? Because you're quite right. People think about capital, the term capital, and quite properly use it in different ways. So in the bank regulatory context, the simplest way to think about capital is it's the residual when you subtract your liability, a bank's liabilities from the bank's assets. Now, Getting to that calculation in the actual regulatory system is a pretty complicated affair, but conceptually, that's what it is. And so what that is, is it's it's what is available to absorb loss, as you explained in your introduction. Uh, And it's a pretty supple tool for assuring safety and soundness of financial institutions, because even if the regulators and the banks don't quite get right what the sources of risk are, and so it turns out that one asset class it turns out to be riskier than anticipated and another less so, you've still got capital there to absorb loss. 
and basically the the um, uh, regulators, global regulators, turned in the direction of capital in the late 80s, after it became clear that the traditional ways of trying to assure bank safety and soundness of restricting their activities and restricting competition among them were no longer particularly viable in, a, in an era of exploding capital market institutions. Now, just very, very fundamentally, for listeners who may not be um, familiar with, with the way the regulation works, what, what you do to decide how much capital the bank needs is you assign a risk weight to each of the assets which the bank holds. So it could be a loan or a treasury bill or a crypto asset. Uh, and that, that assigned risk weight is obviously supposed to reflect the relative amount of risk that, uh, of loss that the asset poses. Uh, and then once you've done that, you add up all the risk weights and you get something called your risk-adjusted uh, assets. And then you take a percentage of that, a designated percentage of it, and that's the capital requirement. Uh, the last thing I'll say is there are three kinds of risks that capital requirements are based on. There's credit risk, there's market risk, and there's operational risk. So credit risk, as it sounds, the risk that someone to whom you've lent uh, defaults. Market risk, an asset that you hold like a treasury bill uh, declines in value on the market. And operational risk, which is kind of the, the most elusive of them covers a wide range of things like legal risk, operational risk, technological risk, cyber risk, and the like. And as, as Caitlin's very good article in Forbes explained, operational risk looms a lot larger in the cyber area, the crypto area, than it does for a lot of traditional assets. I think what's really underappreciated when you talk about bank capital is that it's the product of a regulatory inspection, uh, if one will, of a particular asset. And it's at least in part a reflection of a perception of the larger ecosystem in which it's issued and, and traded and bought and sold. Uh, Caitlin, uh, when, when you think about it all and how regulators are trying to think through the appropriate capital requirements for crypto-related transactions, what is it about crypto that makes this process different or, or more challenging as compared to determining the riskiness of other uh, complex financial products? Thank you. That's a great question. And Governor Tarullo covered the risk-weighted assets calculation very well. And that's one of the two risks is price volatility. And the greater the price volatility, the greater the risk weighting, which then translates through the formula to the bank has to hold more capital. And the BIS proposal that recently came out effectively requires the bank to hold dollar-for-dollar dollar capital. It treats digital assets, which are highly volatile in price, although not volatile in system, but highly volatile in price, they, they, uh, they are treated as, as the, the same as highly volatile stocks, for example. Um, banks that hold them on their books have to hold dollar-for-dollar dollar capital. The second type of risk, though, as Governor Tarullo rightly pointed out, is the operational risk, which is harder to pin down. And what's interesting about it is the operational risk doesn't come from Bitcoin or other digital assets themselves. It comes from the way that banks are set up to handle operations. Bitcoin moves at the speed of light and it settles in minutes. Whereas most banks' operations are set up for overnight reconciliation. 
this is one of the reasons why it takes time for you to move money through, through say, for the, a, the ACH system to move U.S. dollars. That can take a day or two to move your money. It's because the banks reconcile and settle up overnight. Bitcoin, however, settles in minutes, and they're just not set up to handle that. Therein sneaks in the operational risk. And uh, I think uh, because I'm, I'm both a Bitcoiner and a traditional banker by background, um, most of the Bitcoiners were surprised when I said the BIS didn't charge a high enough capital requirement because the dollar for dollar capital requirement is punitive. And a lot of people said so. And I came out and said, it's not enough. And the reason is this latter issue. Bitcoin settles very quickly. And so a bank could find itself over its skis, proverbially. It, it could end up with, a, a, with an exposure intraday that it doesn't even know about until the next day after it's run its over, overnight reconciliation. That is extraordinarily helpful. And, and, but maybe before we even jump into the operational question, and, and really just for clarification, um, you know, there are hundreds of crypto assets, really thousands with different protocols and, and design features. But do you have a sense as to the importance of those differences? Uh, do you have a sense of, of, of whether or not different kinds of crypto assets or different kinds of programming or decisions made at the level of the protocol uh, could impact the riskiness of, of holding or transacting in that asset? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, most folks in the crypto industry recognize that the ones that the protocols that have withstood the test of time are Bitcoin and now increasingly Ethereum, but pretty much nothing else. Everything else is viewed as experimental. And to your point, some of them settle much faster than Bitcoin. Bitcoin settles on average every 10 minutes. Uh, and because these are probability based systems, Typically, intermediaries will not consider it settled until there have been six confirmations. And so, therefore, that's an hour after the transaction um, has, has occurred. You see it in your wallet at the speed of light, but, you, but it's not considered um, confirmed on the blockchain until six blocks have been mined um, after the one that includes that transaction. Uh, Ethereum goes, can go a lot faster, actually. That, Ethereum can go within, within a few minutes as opposed to 10 minutes. Uh, to your point. And there are others that, that actually go even faster than that. But, but therein lies the, the rub. Um, for a bank that's holding these assets on their books that does not have systems that can risk monitor minute by minute and doesn't have an ability to understand its reconciliation until overnight, um, it, it's not hard to see how problems can arise. It is worth noting, though, that the BIS guidelines focused on banks that, that are owning Bitcoin and crypto assets on their books. Banks do provide another valuable service, which is something called custody. Um, your, your 401k plan, your pension plan, um, your mutual funds are all held by a custody bank. The bank is not investing in the stocks in your mutual fund. What the bank is doing is just holding that as a service as a what's called a fiduciary they are they are they're holding that as a third party custodian and that is a business that the BIS guidelines didn't really talk about that is absolutely legitimate and the banks are not exposed to the price volatility or indeed most of these settlement risks we're talking about uh, and, and so it is important to note that a bank that's providing custody services for Bitcoin is different than a bank that's directly in holding the Bitcoin on its own books and again, only because this is such an interesting line of, of questioning. I mean, from, from your perspective over at Vati, obviously you're 
you're seeing a lot of this um, up close and trying to make decisions as to how to operate and navigate not just the regulatory requirements, but since you're active um, in digital assets and 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 Bitcoin, you know what are the the the, the better or less risky activities versus um, uh, you know the, the the riskier activities and trying to make a judgment when you see this coming down the pike. Um, do, do you do you think that just the announcement in and of itself is going to have a, a pretty important impact on um, how your bank and other banks um, or other institutions thinking about banking and crypto banking uh, uh, may may operate? Well, it was it was definitely welcome because regulatory clarity has been lacking in this area, and that was a step forward. Uh, but it's really aimed mostly at the very large banks, the the, the so-called globally systemically important institutions. GSIBs uh, for short. Um, the small banks, um, really none of the small banks involved, Avanti, my bank included, are planning to own Bitcoin on our books, um, precisely for the reasons that we talked about. Providing custody services, yes, but not owning it directly. It's really the big banks that will that, that want to own it directly. And you've seen some of the non-US um, GSIBs. Uh, um, BBVA in Spain, for example, has announced that it, it is actually trading Bitcoin on its own books. I do worry about that um, way back five years ago was the first time I said uh, that that I, that Bitcoin could take a GSIB down. And again, this is not Bitcoin's fault. It's because of these settlement differences that are not well understood. Bitcoin, there's uh, there's no supply elasticity. There's a finite amount of Bitcoin, and there's no clearinghouse. What does that mean? Um, it, uh, Wall Street Wall Street handled a lot of these these. Um, these settlement issues in traditional assets. They exist between, say, U.S. dollars and a share of Apple stock as well. Those don't settle on the same cycles either. So how did Wall Street and the bank capital requirements handle that? Um, they did it two ways. They, 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 the capital that Governor Terullo spoke of is, is a loss absorption mechanism. And then the other is that, that Wall Street moved towards central clearing. And what that means is that the financial system controls the collateral, right? All the Apple shares circulate within the financial system. If one institution has a loss on it, then it's easy to allocate where that loss went. But it's, it's a closed system. The, the challenge with Bitcoin is it's not. Um, an estimated right now, only an estimated 12% of Bitcoin's trade. And so what that means is that we're, we're very unlikely to have um, uh, um, central clearing in the way that we have central clearing houses for dollars, which is central banks, the Federal Reserve, uh, and stocks, which in the U.S. is a company called the DTC. For derivatives, we have central clearing now, um, ICE and, you know, um, um, and similar organizations. And then also even for commodities, the LBMA member banks, gold, they control the vast majority of gold, but individuals control the vast majority of Bitcoin. And so again, this is a different animal and Bitcoin needs its own special settlement rules if it's going to be put inside on, on the balance sheets of the big banks, especially. So, so Dan, when you listen to this conversation, I mean, you know, you've, you were uh, front and center uh, in trying to tackle all kinds of uh, complex uh, financial products uh, from derivatives and credit default swaps um, to uh, CDOs and other uh, related uh, instruments. I mean, when you hear this story and when, and when you hear uh, and when you read and take a look at what the, uh, what the bank 
for international settlements and Basel Committee is trying to do. I, I mean, how do you view the 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 riskiness, um, uh, if not of crypto assets, then then at least the approach to trying to engage um, uh, the risk and the operational risk associated with um, uh, crypto assets? Well, first first thing to note, Chris, I think is that th this the uh, Basel Committee paper that that the three of us have been talking about is. A, it's only a consultative paper, it's not final. And B, one thing that jumped out at me was the Basel Committee in the introduction went out of its way to emphasize the tentativeness of this paper. That is, most of the time when the Basel Committee puts out a consultative paper, it's kind of like a proposed reg in US administrative law. The agency kind of knows what it wants to do. And yeah, it'll make some changes based on comments, but it's it's almost like a rough draft or a first draft. Here, I I don't think that's the case. And the Basel Committee said they may need more than one go round here. And I suspect that's because, on the one hand, for all the reasons Caitlin has mentioned, they felt they needed to get out there and and start engaging on this issue. On the other hand, also for the reason she mentioned, it it's it's not conceptually new for a reason I'll mention in a moment, but it's technologically new and they need to get their arms around it, which they haven't done. Secondly, um, the way in which capital requirements on crypto assets for banks evolve is going to depend a lot on the environment you know, for crypto assets generally. So just to take two big variables, one, will uh, there be regulation of most issuers of crypto assets? If the answer is yes, then you have one regime for banks holding crypto assets. If the answer is no, you've got to have a very different, much more cautious conservative regime. And secondly, will central banks issue digital currencies? And if so, how will those, or I, I should say when, we don't know about the US, but other countries I'm pretty sure are going to, then the question is, how will those interact, particularly with stable coins, um, uh, as opposed to things like Bitcoin? Uh, so I, I, that, that's the tentativeness, I think, is important to note. Next, um, the, the op risk, as, as I kind of alluded to, the op risk for many conventional banks is a pretty, is a pretty narrow slice of the total risks that they face. But that's not always true. If you look at a custody bank like State Street or Boney Mellon, op risk is more important there. And you know, you can say, well, State Street's got 15% of risk-weighted assets and capital. But you know, if the systems break down tomorrow, that is a real problem. And the additional, you know, 500 basis points of capital isn't gonna is gonna help anybody. Uh, and I and I think. That's the realm that we're moving into here, where operational risk is um, not the only thing by any means, because obviously there is market risk, but it is much more of a challenge than in most areas. And, and let me just analogy, it's not an analogy really, but you know, cyber risk has emerged as the major op risk over the last decade or so. And when you think about capital and cyber risk, you say, well, you know, we've got cyber risk. So should we have an op risk that's 250 basis points rather than 150 basis points? And my answer to that, to our guys was, yeah, well, 
if we wake up tomorrow and somebody has wiped out all the financial records of the major banks, it really doesn't matter how much capital they have, we're going to have chaos in financial markets. So the answer there is not just capital. And I think with crypto assets, we're going to have to um, adjust a little bit and move away from this notion that most things can be solved by just upping the capital requirements a bit. Uh, and, and, and there's going to have to be something that, you know, maybe we're going to have to confine how much a bank can do until it either it demonstrates that it can do all the things Caitlin says it should do, or we know that everybody else is regulated. But, but I think there are going to have to be some additional measures here. And my guess is the final Basel paper on this is going to look quite a bit different from the thing that they just put out. So one of the really interesting aspects about that uh, um, observation is that none of these decisions are really made in a regulatory vacuum. That that ultimately, if you're trying to assess risk and the risk of dealing in any particular um, asset, or in this case, a particular crypto asset, you, you ask yourself, well, are there any intermediaries who may be regulated? And uh, are there any other kinds of tools that are being deployed elsewhere in the financial system that may... Uh, uh, reduce some elements of operational risk, or are are we really in a world um, where you know we we can only use one very narrow set of tools, and therefore you have to almost uh, rely or, or or over rely or really grab hold to them as tightly as possible in order to address that 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 risk, and, and certainly uh, that's going to depend on different countries. Different countries are moving at vastly different speeds, not just when it comes to this, this, this question of, of, of bank capital, but, but you know, what layer uh, of, of supervision and uh, they want to apply to these other, let's call them critical crypto market infrastructures. You know, um, uh, uh, I'll start with, with, with Dan just to get his view, since obviously you, you, you are our international diplomat uh, when it comes to sort of weaving and, and addressing these kinds of, of, of issues. You know, what happens in, with the truly nascent in you know young markets like crypto like a market for crypto assets like how do you even begin to 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 navigate that the regulators have been kind of behind um particularly in in dealing with the impact of shadow banking on regulated banks for quite some time now uh and so in one sense in one sense this is another chapter in that narrative um, but obviously one with more challenges um, associated with it. And that's why I, I look, I think that that um, a, a basically dollar of capital for a dollar of asset uh, will be an inhib- will inhibit the, the bigger banks from moving down this road if, they, if that's where it's going to be. But you know what's going to happen. They're going to start pushing for a lower, charge because they basically say, well, you make it uneconomical. And the regulators are going to be concerned that if banks are priced out of this market by regulatory charges, that the market will grow in the unregulated space with two consequences. One, there will still be financial stability risks, but they'll now be outside the regulatory perimeter. And two, that the franchise value of the regulated banking system will be further eroded, something that shadow banking has already done. 
and that big tech is in the process of doing right now. So in a way, Chris, there's an interesting analog to the 1970s when capital markets, as I had mentioned earlier, were growing apace, threatening bank balance sheets, both sides of the balance sheet, you know, money market funds threatening deposits, capital markets, CP threatening the asset side lending. And at that time, the U.S. and to a considerable extent, foreign regulators made the decision that they were going to help support bank um, uh, franchise value by deregulating the banks. And, you know, that basic decision laid the seeds or planted the seeds of the, the global financial crisis. And we're at with, with crypto assets, with big tech getting into banking, where I think we're at, an, we're at a similar juncture where regulators are going to have to decide, and they will decide by default if they don't make an affirmative decision, but the, there's going to be a decision as to whether the response is going to be lightly or, or less stringently regulate the banks so that they can compete in this game, or whether it's going to be to allow them to compete with rigorous supervision, but at the same time, place some regulatory constraints upon other actors. And, you know, just to take a concrete example that almost everybody can relate to, the the decision to allow money market funds to operate as non-banks has produced what? The federal government has now bailed money market funds out three times and the commercial paper market out four times. And, you know, we don't want to go through this again. Um, And I think that's why you kind of got to get it right. And it's why, even though, you know, nobody probably is very happy with that paper that the Basel people put out, I I think the Basel committee is, is probably trying to do the right thing here, which is to get the process moving, but not rush to judgment, because this is a decision that's going to have a lot of consequences. Caitlin, I'm really curious to get your perspective here. Uh, you are not a big tech company. You're not a big tech uh, firm or, or, or a big bank, but you obviously are engaged uh, and, and are watching some of the general trends, and certainly insofar as they're important for the overall stream of regulatory thinking. Um, how do you view the process going from here? Well, I think um, Governor Torillo's comments are absolutely right. Uh, I would add, though, there is a middle ground, which is these special purpose charters that are in three different states now, um, two, two enacted and, uh, and one um, will be enacted shortly. Uh, they're in the states of Wyoming, Nebraska, and Illinois right now. None have been granted access to the Federal Reserve payment system. What does that mean? It means that none of the traditional banks actually can be digital asset custody banks. That pathway is not open right now. And the question is, what if it were open and these activities were inside the banking system? Um, it is important to note that I, I think um, it's very, very critical for the regulatory policymakers to be engaging with people on the ground. 
plumbers like me, I'm a proud plumber of both systems um, because to put the plumbing together is where the issues are. It, to Governor Torillo's point, it's all an operational risk. It looks very similar to a custody bank, except again, these are different assets than securities or commodities that can be centrally cleared. Um, and, and so it, you've got to go to where the information frontier is. And the information frontier is not in the large banks. I don't know a single Bitcoin core developer that works for a large bank. Avanti's chief technology officer is one of the 30 or so who maintains the Bitcoin core code. And he got Satoshi Nakamoto's original email um, when he was a teenager <laughs> back in 2009. Um, that's where the information frontier is, right? And so you need people who, who can truly um, put, put the plumbing together on both sides. But I would uh, come back and suggest that it can be done. Um, to Governor Torillo's point, which, is, I, which I fully agree with, Historically, there have been concerns about bringing non-bank activities inside the banking system. And this has been, to his point, a, a tug of war that has lasted decades. And, uh, and, and the conservative, uh, small c conservative um, um, faction of that debate says, no, let's, let's keep the status quo, um, recognizing that those risks are building up outside the banking system um, the, the, what I would call the more realist faction says, we did that. We've seen this movie before. And, and under duress, the securities firms, which built up all these risks outside the banking system, were brought into the banking system under duress in 2008. And we don't want to repeat that movie. Again, we've seen that uh, to his point with the money market mutual funds, the commercial paper market. And now we have stable coins. What's fascinating about stable coins is uh, this is a type of digital asset that has an issuer. Unlike Bitcoin or Ethereum, stablecoins have an issuer. And they're basically becoming a, new, a whole new form of money market. Uh, right now, there's about 105 billion of US dollar stablecoins outstanding. To put that into context, that's three times the size of PayPal, which has 35 billion outstanding as of March 31st. And for years, people have been expressing concern about the non-bank fintechs, such as PayPal, growing. Well, the stablecoin market is already three times that size. That problem is already here. You have seen now uh, Fed Governor Rosengren just two weeks ago uh, give a speech about the potential impact because stablecoins now are a quarter of the size of the entire prime money market fund um, industry, uh, that what if there were a run? And let me give you a scenario. This is something the BIS folks should be modeling and all of the bank supervisors that, that supervise the correspondent banks that service the digital asset industry should be modeling this scenario. Blockchains can have something called an accidental fork. And what happens in accidental forks, they, they are probable. You can see them statistically happening. They happen periodically. There have been a handful in each Bitcoin and Ethereum. Ethereum is the, is the blockchain that the majority of stablecoins are issued on. Uh, and there was an accidental fork that happened in November 2020. For, and, and typically these resolve within, within a, a, a block or two. Uh, but this one lasted several hours. And I was worried at the time about a potential run on stablecoins. Because what happens when the chain splits is that there are tokens on each chain, but you've only got $1 of reserves against the two tokens on each chain. You've got to redeem them and reissue them. And redeeming $105 billion of assets in the span of hours, what kind of an impact will that happen, would that have on the financial system? The, the Federal Reserve is right to be asking these questions and starting to raise 
the implications of systemic risk. And I'll close by saying just yesterday, uh, the former CEO of Barclays, um, he has a SPAC that announced a merger with a, an issuer of a stablecoin called Circle, and they disclosed, they made uh, a number of SEC filings related to that. Circle has $25 billion outstanding, and it projected $190 billion outstanding by 2023. So again, these are going to overtake the size of money market funds pretty fast if these projections come true. And they're projecting to lend out $50 billion of that at 4 to 7% yields, and that's backed by U.S. Treasury. So it's effectively a government money market fund yielding 4 to 7%. If that happens, think about the mass migration of deposits out of the banking system into a 4 to 7% yielding US dollar cash equivalent. Same thing with the money market fund industry. What kind of impact is that going to have on the financial system broadly? These are questions that need to be asked. And uh, does, is this finally, to Governor Trullo's point, the thing that, that breaks this debate that's been happening for decades about the, the, the buildup of risks outside of the banking system, is this what finally breaks that open? Uh, and and I'll, I'll end by saying we had almost a 10-year period in the United States where no new banks were chartered. There have been a few, uh, about a couple dozen um, in the last few years, uh, but it's been just too hard to start banks and, the, and thus it's easier to start fintechs. Uh, and there is a policy decision that has to be made. And one of those policy decisions is, frankly, to just start chartering more banks and get more of these activities inside the banking system where I think they would flow if they had a pathway. And there isn't a pathway right now. You know, I, I really want to see this business model where you buy 10-year tre treasuries yield, yielding, uh, what, 1.4% and you pay 4% interest. Um, but so I'm kind of wondering what's going on there. I, you know, when Caitlin was talking about the dearth of expertise in some of the bigger banks, it, for, to me, you know, the way I heard that was, yeah. And if the big banks lack expertise, what about the supervisors? You know, a chronic problem for bank supervisors in the United States and throughout the world in the crypto, in the, uh, excuse me, cyber area is the bank regulators just do not have the kind of expertise that's really needed to oversee the cyber security efforts of financial institutions. It's, you know, the, the United States government has two really important sources of cyber expertise, the National Security Agency and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. The NSA is, as everybody knows, kind of focused on national security traditional national security threats. The FBI is focused on bad guys who have already done something bad. And I, you know, for the whole time I was at the Fed, I worried that we didn't have a robust enough um, structure to complement the expertise of the banks. Well, if that was the case, what's it going to be like in crypto assets, where there's actually less expertise in terms of number of people? And and I do I think I do think that that is going to be it's going to be an ongoing issue um, as well. It's interesting. The FBI has been involved with the chartering of all three of the um, digital asset specialty banks uh, at the state level. Uh, we're on a first name basis <laughs> with our FBI. Well, contact. that's because um, see, th this because money laundering is such yeah. a big deal in the crypto area 
that I think it's got the full attention of the FBI. And that's, that's a good thing for bank regulators. They may not like, you know, the encroachment. They may feel the way local police departments do when the FBI comes in. But I got to tell you, they should welcome it. Dan, Caitlin, we have always prided ourselves on this podcast with bringing people uh, conversations that they just won't get anywhere else. And I think this one certainly fits the bill. Thank you so much to you both for joining us. Thank Thank you. If finance comprises the engine or wheels of the modern financial institution, capital serves as the brakes and shock absorbers. And what this conversation with Dan and Caitlin reminds me is that in understanding both finance and capital, context matters. In the end, defining what capital should be assessed to companies requires digging into and understanding risk. Something, by the way, that's hard enough to assess in a world of finance and is especially hard when adapting it to new assets with short histories and traded in at times thin markets. The good thing is that precisely because of the importance of context, it's not hard to imagine a myriad of ways in which risk might be addressed in the coming years by industry and stakeholders dependent on it. And it's near certainty that as a result, just what risks arise are bound to change and evolve. The interesting question, of course, will be how policymakers in turn adapt. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you.